before we get rolling here, I wanted to strongly urge you to go back and listen to two previous episodes where John Lomax III was the guest. Really good episodes. It was episode 80 where he talked about his family's contribution to American music. It's safe to say that American music would be much different if it weren't for the efforts of the Lomax family. I'm not sure what it would sound like, but it would sound nothing like it does today. There's episode 81, where John talks about managing Towns Van Zandt. You can only imagine what that might be like. He told a lot of great stories on those episodes, and I just want to urge everybody to go digging around in the archives, because there's a lot of gems waiting for you back there. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Lomax III. John is a historian, a writer, a manager. He's done so many things. You can find out everything you need to know about John at Lomax3.com. I'm really excited to have John back on the show. He's a really good guy. He's super smart and knowledgeable. I always learn an awful lot from him. Considering his family's contribution to American folk music, you know, it's just beautiful to get to sit and learn from him. John recently found a cassette tape of his father sitting in his home in Houston back in 1969, singing a bunch of American folk songs. And John decided he would go ahead and put that out into the world so other people could enjoy it. It's a wonderful document, and I strongly urge you guys to look it up and give it a listen. John was nice enough to invite me over to his home here in Nashville, and we sat down, and he told me a lot of stories about his father, John Avery Lomax Jr., and he was one of the co-founders of the Houston Folklore Society, and there's a whole lot of goodness that came out of that, and I think you guys will enjoy this. Maybe you'll learn a few things like I did. Here's John Lomax III. Well, the society, he and some other guys started the society in 51. It's still going. So he and uh, Ed Badeau is someone that uh, your audience might recognize. He wound up editing Sing Out for a number of years. It's B-A-D-E-A-U-X. Really good guitar and banjo player. Was part of the Texian Boys, which was my dad's group where he actually sang with a band, and Ed and Jim Rose and Howie Porper and a couple of others were members of the Texian Boys who did that one album for Folkways 
Songs of Texas. So uh, that uh, they started out having meetings in the house, and at our house there in, in West University, and uh, just in the kind of living room, dining room area. And of course, in the beginning, there wasn't it was eight, ten, twelve people, and it was easy to do that. And the meetings would consist of about maybe five minutes of business, unquote, business, so to speak, which was mainly my dad getting up and saying, well, we got $48 in the kitty, and uh, we got dues coming in, and uh, we're going to hopefully bring in a folk singer, but we need to pay, you know, get it up to $100 or something. You know, and that was that. You know? <laughs> and then it was past the guitar, which we call today a, you know, a guitar pull. Back then it was a hootenanny. But it was the same deal. It was everyone who came who wanted to sing or perform got a shot. Didn't matter how good or bad you were or anything, you got your shot. And the ones that were really far advanced didn't get you know, more time than the ones that were just starting. It was a very democratic little organization and kind of grew organically. This started in 51, so toward the second half of the decade you know we had the what steve earl calls the great folk scare but when folk music got really popular and uh, so the crowds got bigger the group got bigger uh, my dad was helping to put on programs and they sort of gradually grew from putting them on in uh, city park pavilions, a covered pavilion where they'd have the family and the dogs and everything and people sitting on blankets on the ground to small little venues. And then they got up to the Jewish Community Center and then eventually had some shows at Cullen Auditorium at the University of Houston, which was probably six, seven hundred people. And by then, my dad had connected with Lightning Hopkins and... Uh, he would lasso lightning to come in and play at some of these events. And uh, Guy Clark kind of got his, uh, some of his earliest performances were done there at the Folklore Society. Same thing for Lucinda Williams, who back then was Lou, L-U Williams. K.T. Oslin was a member, and she had a duo with Frank Davis called Frank and Kay. And they were regulars on various events. I think Nancy Griffith came along toward the end of the time that I was in Texas and and was, I don't know if she was a member, but I think she did some concerts. Eric Taylor was another one uh, and a bunch of others that I'm a little vague on right now. I was always off playing baseball and knowing that I was going to be a huge baseball star and paying very little attention to all this going on right there. They all liked singing, and they all wanted to have some sort of group where they could get together. And this was sort of the, the umbrella that they were able to create to have a reason to, to gather once a month. And uh, my dad began singing, I'm sure, in a very early age because he was surrounded by this music that his grandfather, his father, my grandfather, had found and recorded. So, yeah, it was social, and uh, 
just a way for him to have a way to sing and his friends to have a way to sing other than, you know, at their homes and in their showers because there weren't any folk clubs back then, really, or, or we, venues. Why did they decide to start taking membership dues and things like that? They have ideas that they wanted to put on shows also? Yeah, and uh, that was the main part of it, was to have a little budget to be able to pay some people. I think they actually got Pete Seeger one time, and I'm not sure how that was done, but I'm pretty sure he came in, and then they had to pay Lightning something. Later on, uh, my dad and um, Mac McCormick led uh, Chris Strakowitz up to Navasota where Mance Lipscomb was and sort of brought, built that bridge between Chris and Mance that resulted in Mance being the initial artist on our Hooli records and went on to, God think, did six records with Chris. And he had been a slave, literally, on a plantation on Tom Moore's farm, like the song says, <clears throat> for almost his whole life. He was probably in his late 50s or so, when he was discovered, so to speak. Played a lot of house concerts on Saturday night on the plantation. They, they would let him off work, and they would go at it from Saturday night all the way through into Sunday morning in these dances they'd have in the, on the plantation in a little house somewhere, somebody's house. Literally all night? I literally, yeah. Mance would tell me, yeah, I'd play eight, nine hours, and... Just uh, act like it was, you know, totally normal. Just, oh, yeah, yeah, we'd play eight or nine hours, and it'd be sun and come up, and then we'd kind of peter out and go to church. He <laughs> <laughs> was really casual about it. Just, yeah, eight or nine hours. <laughs> what did Mance think when he finally started playing uh, universities and theaters to well, for 90 was, minutes? Yeah, well, he was thrilled uh, to be able to break out of that little you know, niche where he was. I mean, he was playing in Navasota. He didn't have any concerts, really, until I think my dad had come along and started bringing him down to the Folklore Society things and then started spreading the word a little bit. And so Mance got some folk festivals. And then when Chris started putting records out, then he was able to go out and play, you know, folk gigs at mainly festivals and and make decent money and also do you know, an hour or 45 minutes set or maybe two, but not any, not any nine hour jobs. And he was a little more versatile for, to me than lightning. Uh, and of course, Mance sort of typifies country blues and lightning is more the electric blues and the urban blues kind of guy. Although he could sit down with an acoustic and, and do country blues just as well as anyone. But, He's more identified with electric blues than acoustic. Was there ever a problem with the neighbors when you guys would have uh, Lightning or Mance over in this white neighborhood in the 1950s Texas? They looked at us kind of weird because there were black people in our little area. We grew up in West University Place, which today is very, very hoity-toity. But back then, it was a simple little post-war community and two-bedroom two, two houses and quarter-acre lots. And uh, a lot of the people were well-to-do enough to have a maid at least one day a week. 
And so <clears throat> we would have the black maids come in the morning and leave in the afternoon, but the Lomaxes would have black men coming over in the evenings, <laughs> which really kind of scandalized some of the neighbors. And I don't know what they would say, but <clears throat> my dad was good at finessing it all and <clears throat> calming everyone down. But yeah, they did look at us sort of oddly because of that. I didn't think a whole lot about it at the time. Just, uh, oh, yeah, there's lightning again. He's over here on the couch just picking and talking to my dad. And he was a very friendly and chatty kind of guy. And my dad wound up managing him almost 10 years, kind of the mid-50s on into the 60s. And then I handed lightning off to a black doctor, Dr. Harold, who is a good, that's a good person to handle lightning <laughs> doctor we could keep after him uh, but yeah it was a little odd i mean we we never felt threatened and and to my knowledge we never got any hate mail or obscene calls or anything like that although it certainly could have happened parents would have not told us about it I never really knew Guy much back then. Like I say, I was off in baseball world. And he, I do remember him coming around, and uh, this would have been probably early 60s, because after 62, I was off at University of Texas, so it would have had to have been 60, 61 maybe. And then uh, I would come in, come in and out of town from there. But one thing I remember was, at the time, I don't think he really had any songs of his own, but he would play other people's songs, and I remember very clearly him playing San Francisco Bay Blues and just tearing it up, and I was thinking, you know, this guy could really play the guitar. <laughs> and singing was okay, you know, the guy was never a, you know, a matinee idol vocalist. He was a folk singer who was really good at bringing, telling a story and making you believe it and bringing you into the, the picture and making you think about what he was saying. But at the time, it was well before he and Towns got together. So Guy was pretty much, most people were back in the early 60s playing other people's songs. It was folk. And so they would learn various folk songs and then, their own little stamp on them but that was my my main memory of guy was seeing him play that and going geez because i'd heard jesse fuller do it on record and thought, this guy's big time <laughs> but not uh i don't think he had any songs then at that point or if he did i didn't remember them and, uh, i'd always heard stories from people we'll say around texas around houston they would talk about how when Guy or Towns would meet some young writer who would call himself a folk singer, you know, he would ask them to play, you know, whatever particular songs. And if they didn't know the folk catalog, he could be pretty hard on them. Well, Guy particularly. Well, Town, they were hard in different ways, kind of. Guy could just look at you and... And you'd kind of want to go <laughs> slink out of the house and <laughs> lick your wounds, whereas Towns could be a little more verbally cutting. And But I'm not sure that Towns had as broad a knowledge of folk as Guy did, because Towns was really, you know, he had his three influences, which were Hank Williams, Bob Dylan, and Lightning. So he tended to kind of 
be in that general neck of the woods, whereas I think Guy had a lot broader uh, knowledge of folk, per se. And Towns, of course, had his uh, childhood memories pretty much wiped out by having electroshock therapy when he was a late teenager and early 20s, I guess, around 18, 19, 20 years old. His parents sort of freaked out, and back then that was a approved treatment for people with, you know, doing things that you didn't understand, so you just go shoot the juice to them and see if that fixed things. My grandmother had that twice. So, yeah, that was a different time. Yeah, well, Towns was responsible. He and another fellow, Caddo Perry Studdard, co-writer of Delta Mama Blues, talked my parents out of giving it to me, uh, having e, uh, ECT, as they call it now, administered to me when I had kind of run amok after getting out of college and taking a lot of drugs and not paying much attention to anything other than partying down. And I didn't really know what I was going to do, so I was having a big time there. And then uh, one day I got a call from a man at Delta Airlines. I had flown to San Francisco in the summer of love with my brand new Delta credit card, which you graduated college back then and you're deluged with credit cards. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. I just have this piece of plastic and I get on an airplane and go to San Francisco and didn't worry about paying for it until one day this fella called me and said that I, he was with Delta Airlines and I was to get this amount of money to them by the next day or I was going to jail. Got a little concerned at that point. <laughs> Called mommy and daddy, and they were not happy with me anyway. And this was sort of, they, we agreed that I would go into treatment at the hospital. And Towns and Guy talked them out of doing electroshock. So I just got basically dried out in a lot of therapy and hopefully have done right since then, although have my doubts. But <laughs> I don't take acid anymore. <laughs> have it for a while <laughs> but yeah it was now i understand they've refined it and learned a whole lot more about it and it is it is effective in some in some cases but back then it pretty much wiped towns childhood out of his brain In the 33 expedition, yes, my dad helped actually functioned as the road manager. Initially, he went out for a little while, but he basically set it up. In 1932, my grandfather was probably about at his lowest ebb. His wife had just died unexpectedly at the age of 50. She was a bit younger. He was, by then, he was in bad health. He had no job and was just in the dumps. And my dad moved back to the house from wherever he was living at the time. He had, he had gone off to Harvard in 1928 to go to Harvard Business School, but then had to drop out because of the Depression. So he had gone back eventually to Dallas and uh, convinced my grandfather to, to have another go at it and to get going with his folk collecting, which he never stopped collecting, but he didn't have a book out for quite a few years after Cowboy Songs and a couple of other early ones. Then there was a sort of a 10 or 12 year gap there. So they, my dad convinced him to 
go and set up, he helped set up the lecture tour, and so they could build a tour around what paying dates they could get, where they would, he would give a lecture and sell a few books from cowboy songs and earlier books, and they had routed themselves up to New York, and they met with Macmillan, and Macmillan gave them the green light to do the cowboy, uh, the American Ballads and Folk Songs project, and then they were able to get the Library of Congress involved in that and worked a deal with them where they would get the equipment and the including the, the the discs, the aluminum discs that they would be recording on. By then they were had gone from cylinders into aluminum discs. Grandfather started recording in nineteen eight and it was wax cylinders back then. But so my dad helped arrange the tour he went out on some of the dates, and I mean, they would go out and do lectures, and then they would put out the word to people. They had my grandfather by then had a correspondent network of friends and friends of friends and people that knew he was looking for original material and songs that showed American folk. So they were able to kind of build from there and find somebody in an area and go visit them. And they would say, oh, you need to talk to so-and-so down there. He knows a bunch of songs. And they would literally live on the side of the road at night. They'd just set up camp, put up tents and sleep by the side of the road and scrounge up whatever food they could. It was pretty rough going. In fact, both uh, Alan came in <clears throat> Excuse me. About nine, sometime in 1933, he dropped out of the university. At 17, he was already a senior in college. Whoa! And he dropped out and joined the tour. And my dad had to go off and get a job. And he got a job with the government, with a reconstruction finance company, as a bank examiner. And so Alan and my grandfather continued in that tour, that folk song trip wound up encompassing, I think, 25,000 miles in a Model A Ford with the 400-pound tape recorder built into the back, into the trunk, and all of their equipment to fix the car and the recorder, all their clothes, all the camping gear, all of the food and everything, all had to, and them, and the, and the tent had to go into the front seat and part of the back seat, wherever they could put it in this Model A. And they went out, and they were, you know, of course, then they were riding on, we wouldn't even call them roads today. I mean, if you had an actual paved dirt road, I mean, you know, not paved, but flat dirt road, that was great until it rained, of course. But there were very few highways. There weren't any motels to speak of. They called them tourist courts then, but they were very few and far between because they weren't out on the main roads. They were back in the boonies searching out these songwriters, the, not songwriters, these, the songs and the singers that were singing them and recording them on the spot. They'd get as close as they could get with the car, and then they'd have to bring the subject over to them. I mean, they couldn't lift the tape recorder out of the back of the car. So it was pretty rudimentary, and they were literally cutting direct to disc. I mean, my needle was grinding it in as it was being sung. So that would require a little bit of rehearsal ahead of time because you had a limited number of aluminum discs, and if somebody gummed something up in the middle, it was no good. So you can only imagine how they would have to conduct business 
in terms of finding somebody, getting to them, going through the describing what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it, getting the person to do some singing ahead of time so they could make sure this guy could deliver or this woman, whoever they were recording, and then proceeding on to the next place. And the idea that they covered this 25,000 miles in three months and came away with enough material to fill up American ballads and folk songs is just staggering to think of. But they did, and <laughs> that book is, has been sort of a Bible, along with my uncle's folk songs of North America of early American music. Well, he had a number of, uh, one thing is that he, his, all of the music activities were his avocation. It was where his heart was, but it wasn't his living. He made a living. Eventually, he got into land development in Houston and developed subdivisions with a partner. His partner knew the building trade, and my dad knew the business side. And so he was able to arrange the financing and do all of the admin work while his partner took over, watched over the building part. So he, he did that for a living all these years that I was alive. But he also, in addition to the Folklore Society, and in addition to the two albums that he made back then, he also participated in the legendary unexpurgated folk songs of men that Mac McCormick put out in a plain black cover and no identification of any of the performers or anything. And it was songs that would be considered a little risque in 1960, but which today we would just go, what? People thought those were dirty. <laughs> but uh, there was a really cool section where Lightning is doing the dozens. I think Mance was in on this, and that's where my dad's version of Change the Name of Arkansas came from that I included on the folk album. And then he managed Lightning for about 10 years, but he also toured with Lightning and would function sort of as the MC and opening act and would collect the money and keep the money until they got back to Houston so that Lightning wouldn't be able to gamble or drink it away and his wife would actually see some proceeds from the from her husband's touring. Plus, Lightning never had a booking agent or a manager. He trusted very few people, black or white. But somehow my dad was able to win his trust and they had a wonderful relationship as near as I can tell for all those years and lightning had no phone either that was the other element and so my dad would have to go find him he wouldn't be <laughs> he wouldn't be sitting around at 3124 West Gray where he lived he would be out in some joint gambling or drinking or carrying on and so my dad had to kind of learn his way around the black ward there to learn his hangouts or just know who to ask that might know, oh yeah, he's down at the domino parlor, or he's over here, yeah, so I'm at the barber shop. So, and then of course he helped get Mance Lipscomb discovered and get his career going. For somebody who did this in his spare time, it was kind of remarkable when you go back and look at it. In 68, he and Alan and Shirley and Bess, the four children of John A. Lomax, 
did the American Folklife Festival in Washington. And I think that's the only time the four Lomax siblings performed in public together. And Shirley was never, never pursued music at all, the oldest child. And of course, Bess and Alan and my dad did, but they sang a program at the, at the uh, Folklife Festival in 1968, which Bess Hawes, my aunt, uh, had helped arrange the entire creation of the American Folklife Festival, I think a year before. And that's ongoing in the summer right there on the mall in Washington. I have to believe your dad would have been thought of by his peers and friends in this folklore society. He had to have been looked at like a rock star with the things that he'd done in life and things he'd witnessed and been part of. Well, I guess. I never really thought of it that way. I just, it was, there he was, and he was, what struck me was that he would sing at the drop of a hat. I mean, it, they could be... He could be riding his bike around and see a friend on a, their porch, and he would park the bike and go up and do a show. <laughs> In effect, he just loved singing. He loved to pass along the songs that he had learned from his father, who, of course, learned them from the sources of the recordings that came the basis for cowboy songs and American ballads and folk songs and the other books. But he just had this incredible love of singing. He was he never had any training, never had any um, instruction that I'm aware of. He just would get up and sing them. But he had so much passion and conviction and a really large, big voice that it really didn't matter. You didn't care that maybe he'd fluff a note here or there or get off tune slightly or something. It just didn't matter. Uh, what mattered was the story that he would tell with the song that we've done that on this record was give some introductions where he's talking about the song. Well, he would usually do that when he would perform. He would tell people a little bit about where the song came from, what it had to do with, and why it was important. That's great that you included those on the record. Yeah. Oh, golly. Uh, <laughs> I had to do that. I mean, that's just what you had to do. Uh, for me, when I was picking all these songs, was just trying to find ones that I wanted to bring back and shake the dust off of and put them out there again, see if they'll fly. It's sort of the, the, the Lomax mini, mini version of the same concept that Willie used with Stardust and finding all those great songs that he found from the 20s and 30s and 40s and putting new clothes on them and sending them back into the world. And that was one of the two reasons for putting out the album that I did with my dad, where the recordings had been made in 69 and lost for almost 40 years. And the other was, well, and it was a homage to him, of course. And it represents his second solo album that came out something like 65 years or so after the first one, <laughs> let's see, 44, 61 years after his debut, he put his second solo album out. But, uh, and also just to get those songs back into circulation, uh, they kind of, some of them are, of course, never, have never stopped being recorded. Buffalo Skinners is an example. It's been recorded by everybody under the sun and, 
a lot of people that you wouldn't normally think would have done that, like Ricky Skaggs and Bruce Hornsby did a version. Whoa. And uh, the other is just uh, a, a song like The Worms Crawl In that everyone grew up with in my generation, but I could never remember hearing a recording of it until somebody did mention that it's on a Carl Sandburg record. They're just pieces of America. It's my little way of trying to keep the thread of what my grandfather began doing in the, when he started hanging out with cowboys in the 1880s and carrying that into the 21st century and picking up where they left off in a way. It's certainly not the same, but it is spreading music. And Lomaxes, in one way or another, have been spreading music sort of like Johnny Appleseed and Appleseeds since the first cowboy songbook came out in 1910. And thank you so much for uh, sharing stories and inviting me into your house here. Right, and one I forgot to tell you was that we have that album, Folk, by my father. It's on uh, all the digital places that you could think of, and it's also available in hard copy from Amazon Fulfillment for Amazon Prime people, or you can go to Lomax3.com and order it for a measly $12, including postage, and I'll send it to you myself. Beautiful. I recommend everybody does that. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for inviting me over to his home here in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about John at Lomax3.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.